0: So when I was a kid growing up in New England during the summer, you know, at times like this, we would oftentimes go off to New Hampshire, the White Mountains, and go for hikes. Um, We had a lot of ones that our family enjoyed. There was one called the Flume, which was just um, this river basin in the middle of the mountain where there's these wooden pathways where you walk right over it, and it was really neat. There was another one called the Basin that I remember, which was a fairly tame hike except there's this one moment where you have to go over a river that's coming down the mountain, and there's this log that you have to come across, and it was like the most terrifying thing in the world for me. I really felt like I was Indiana Jones as I was just walking across with my family. But I think my favorite um, of the hikes that we would do regularly was one called Bald Mountain. It was not a particularly difficult hike, not a particularly extraordinary one, but what I remember is there was something about it where we would just be kind of walking up this mountain in the middle of the forest, not being able to see anything for about a half an hour, and then suddenly in some moment, and it was especially magical in October, where everything is colored with all the different colors, you would step and suddenly you would see. You would see just all of these mountains, like colors of the rainbow everywhere. Then after a couple of minutes, because you had to keep going, you would walk in another half hour, and then it would open up again, and once again, you would see. And as I've been thinking about things this week, it has occurred to me that there's a sense in which I think our life is a little bit like bald Mountain. Much of the time of our days, we just have things to get through, right? We're just, we're busy, we have responsibilities, we have the things in the list to do, we get to the end of the day, and if we have a little space to breathe, maybe we'll watch a show together just to kind of recuperate, and then the next day goes, and it goes, and we're just like so focused on the moment, but then there's the occasional times where something opens up, and, and we're given this moment to see. Sometimes it can be something like vacation, where things slow down just enough that you begin to start thinking about your life and who you are. Sometimes it can be a moment of crisis, something really horrible happens or almost happens, and suddenly you see life differently, and you're weighing things differently. It can also be like something incredibly wonderful takes place, and you see the goodness of life. Whatever it is, there are these occasional, all too occasional and very precious moments where... where where it's like the the woods open up and we suddenly have this moment where we're able to see things. And and the best of those moments have this potential to change us. If we we listen and absorb them, it can give us a kind of wisdom that can help us actually to know how to live better. The psalm that, that Scott just read for us, Psalm 76, is a psalm that is meant to capture one such moment. The psalm writer has had this Profound experience that has given him insight. And he is writing so that we can share in this this precious awareness that he has come to. And and the insight that he has gained is about God himself. So you might notice, and if you don't have your bulletins open, I invite you to have them open. We're just going to be kind of like working through this psalm. You might notice how it begins where it says, God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. This is not him just like saying a generally true statement. This is a conclusion that he has come to, that he, and especially the people of Jerusalem, you notice that he focuses in verse 2 about Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. The people of Jerusalem have had an experience, and now he's saying, I know God in a way that I didn't before. What is the experience? Well, verse 3 tells us. There he shatters the bow's flaming arrows, the shield, the sword, the weapons of war. In other words, some battle has taken place. There has been an attack upon Jerusalem and God's enemies. This man has seen God's enemies be utterly destroyed by God. And now he sees. He doesn't tell us exactly what events, what, what moment in history he's describing, uh, I'm attracted to, or some commentators go where they suggest this might be talking about the, the point in Israel's history where, where Assyria surrounds Jerusalem. If you were with us when we studied Isaiah together, maybe you remember this moment. Assyria was the superpower, bar none in the moment, and just this massive army comes around Jerusalem, and, and perhaps the psalm writer himself was standing on the wall, looking out and seeing and recognizing that no matter how far he looked, all he saw were troops. It would have been just terrifying. And Isaiah records for us that that in this time where Jerusalem surrounded, actually one of the spokesmen speaks taunting words. And, and the psalmist, if you were on the walls, would have heard this. Beware, the spokesman said, that your king does not mislead you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the other nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria Who among all the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from me? That is what... God's people in Jerusalem would have heard, and and the confidence would have been understandable because by no human measure did Jerusalem stand a chance. This was an army, the Assyrian army, that had never lost, and Jerusalem had nothing. Except Isaiah tells us that that night, the angel of the Lord comes and utterly destroys, utterly destroys the army of Assyria, and when people wake up the next day, they realize that the people of Assyria are gone. And I wonder if that is what the psalm is reflecting on, or if not that moment, something very similarly where this person has watched and seen something remarkable, and now he sees God more clearly. And and in the following verses, we kind of see this progression where verses 4 through 6, he kind of describes what happened. And then verses 7 through 10, he tries to understand what it meant. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, he says, therefore, this is what we need to do. And so that's kind of how we're going to be going, especially focusing on that middle part of what it means. So so what happened in verses 4 through 6, as as the psalm is kind of still, you can can almost imagine the psalm writer now just looking out from the city wall and reflecting and kind of almost inviting us to look with him. And as he is looking out on the, the wreckage, he is remembering what he saw and he says, He speaks of how God came down. So verse 4, you are resplendent and majestic, coming down from the mountains of prey. God has come down. This this God that he has always known about, now he has experienced. He has seen firsthand what this God is like. And when God came down, what he saw was everything that looked so strong and mighty by human standards being utterly emptied. So verse 5, he speaks of the brave-hearted. I don't know if you've seen the movie A Few Good Men. When I think of the brave-hearted for a military, I think of, you know, the Jack Nicholson character, you know, the guy, you can't handle the truth. The one who has like this, this kind of narcissism, this sense that everyone will do what I say because he's seen battle, he knows, he's brave. Well, imagine someone like this, and here's what it says, this brave-hearted person who's accustomed to battle. When God comes near, it all falls apart. It says he falls asleep. He, he's paralyzed. He is so overcome by what he is seeing that that even a kid could come and just plunder, take his army. He is undone. Verse 6 speaks of the warrior, sorry, verse 5 still, of the warriors. You can imagine this military, you have... Hundreds upon hundreds of people who have trained day after day after day in unison. They have experienced, they know how to use a sword and shield like it's second nature, like it's part of themselves. But as God draws near that night and they come before the angel of God and experience the divine presence, it says literally they don't even know how to find their own hands. Like they stop knowing how to use their own bodies as they tremble before God. Or verse 6 speaks of the horse and the chariot. This was the technology of the day, the power, the energy, the strength. It would have terrified the onlookers, but it says when God comes, all God really needs to do is just like say a word, and suddenly the horse just stops moving, stops doing anything, and the chariot rider gives up because they realize how completely outmatched they are. When God draws near, everything that looks big by human standards is shown to be nothing. I'm reminded of what we saw when we were studying the book of Daniel a a, a couple of months ago. You might remember in chapter 4 how Nebuchadnezzar, who was literally the most powerful human being in the world in that moment, looking over his city and saying, look at what I did. I am amazing. And in that moment, it's like God just kind of points at him, and suddenly Nebuchadnezzar falls down and loses his sanity and becomes like an animal and loses everything until he finally, months later, comes to an awareness of who God is and what he is not. And that's what's being described here. As as the psalmist describes what happens, he sees every human power shown to be empty. But that's actually not what he is most struck by. He has seen that, but the thing that he cannot help talking about and thinking about as we move to the meaning of what he saw is what he sees to be true about God. Verse 7, you see him just repeating this one word, you. You. He's speaking to God, and it's like for the first time he is seeing God. You are to be feared. For all of his life, this psalmist would have been exposed to teaching like Deuteronomy that speaks about the need for the fear of God. He would have known about the the rightness of it, but now in a different way he has experienced that the God that is his God is someone who is to be feared. Do you, do you know at all what that's like, to not just know the fact about God being feared, but to, to know what it's like to tremble at the reality of who God is? It's I've heard a number of times people, as they're trying to explain the idea of the fear of God, try to, in some ways, maybe kind of tame it a little bit and say, You know, just think about how we respect others. That's what it's talking about, respect for God. But I hope you can see that in this psalm, at least, that's not really a good fit. It's not like when the army general sees God, they just kind of go, respect. It's not like the warriors just salute God. They are completely undone. That's the fear that's being described here. Notice the kind of fear he's talking about. You are to be feared when you are angry. Who can stand before you? Because that is what he has seen. God does not become angry like we become angry. He does not fly off the handle in a fit of rage. He does not respond to somehow being wounded with bitterness and grudges. But he does express a divine, holy anger. He has a righteous anger. Anger for all that is opposed to what is good and what is beautiful and what is glorious about what he has done. He has a holy hatred for all that hurts, the ones that he loves. He is a God who does get angry, and there is nothing more terrifying than being on the other side of that anger like the army was. That's what the psalmist sees, and he trembles. And it's not just those who are, who are the enemies of God that are, are rightly fearing. Notice what he says in verse 8. From heaven you pronounce judgment. The earth feared and grew quiet. At the sound of God's voice, That the most ferocious tiger attacking prey suddenly just lays down and becomes quiet. At the sound of God's voice, no matter how mighty a thunderstorm we might experience, suddenly the thunderstorm stops speaking in homage to the God who is so much greater. At the sound of God's voice, the the, the powerful ocean that keeps hitting against the shores again and again, being deafening roar, suddenly becomes like crystal. The whole earth, when God speaks, fears and grows quiet at the presence of someone who is so much greater. And you'll notice that this is not, fearing is not just something for just the earth or for God's enemies. Fearing is actually for those who belong to God. I mean, who is this psalmist? This psalmist is not someone who ever was being attacked by God. This is a psalmist who was being rescued by God. That's what verse 9 says. When, When God rose up to judge and to save all the lowly of the earth. That's what happened. He saved the lowly. The psalmist has been saved. He's been rescued. And you would think that having gone from a time of thinking he was certain he was going to die as Assyria was surrounding to a time of knowing he was in safety, his response would be relief. And maybe there is that as well. But the thing that he is left with, having seen who his God is, is a certain kind of terror you, you are to be feared. I'm reminded of a scene in the New Testament maybe you draws to your mind as well when, when Jesus and his disciples are on a boat in the middle of the water and Jesus had a long day, he is sleeping, but, but a storm comes and the waves start pushing the boat around, water enters the boat itself, and, and the disciples who are experienced fishermen who know the waters are certain they're going to die. And so finally they call out to Jesus, Jesus, don't you care that we're dying? And, and Jesus, like, he wipes the sleep out of his eyes, he kind of stands up, looks around, and just says, quiet down, and suddenly everything stops. And right after, this is one of the more interesting parts to think of the story, right after it says, and the disciples became greatly afraid, as if they weren't afraid before compared to that moment. Because as they see Jesus, they ask, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they are terrified. And I want to ask you again, do you know what that means to, to think of God, to think of Jesus, and to tremble? I, I'm convinced that if we don't have space in our view of God for that kind of fear, that kind of awe that, that causes us to feel our our smallness and powerlessness before someone so great, we will not ever have a faith that's able to grow or to mature. That there is something about about having an appropriate terror of God and of Jesus that is crucial to Christian maturity. Now, I realize that might sound strange, maybe you're thinking, but wait a second, doesn't the Bible teach that God loves us that God is a God who extends forgiveness to us, that Jesus laid down His life in compassion upon us, that the resurrection is meant for us to have hope and so that we can know that we be confident and secure. And the answer to all that is yes, absolutely, completely. Let nothing that I'm saying now sound like in any way I'm negating all of that because all of that is true and glorious. In fact, it's the opposite. Unless we understand just how glorious and at times even terrifying our God is, we will never be able to understand just how amazing His love is for us. We we cannot drink from the glorious gospel of God if we do not also draw near to this terrifyingly good God at the same time. There is... um, in, in one of C.S. Lewis's stories, uh, The Silver Chair from the Narnia series, there's this moment at the very beginning where uh, this girl, Jill, who has entered Narnia for the first time, is lost in the woods, and she is desperately thirsty, and she's just kind of like wandering around, she hears water, she finally comes and sees this, this beautiful river of clear, perfect water, and, and yet right next to it is this gigantic, terrifying lion. And she doesn't know what to do. It says that she is just paralyzed by indecision. She desperately wants to drink, but she doesn't ever want to come near to that lion. And at a certain point, the lion speaks and says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I... Could I... "'Would you mind going away while I do?' said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "'Will you promise not... "'To do anything to me if I do come?' said Jill. "'I make no promise,' said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. "'Do you eat girls?' she said. "'I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms,' said the lion.' It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. I think Lewis is right here. For us to drink of the waters of the gospel, we must also recognize we are coming before this God. There are some who, um, out of a good desire, I think, out of a desire to not overwhelm people and help them to know that they can trust in the gospel, there are some who try to kind of soften this. It's it's kind of like, almost like they wanted to say, when you come to the water, don't worry, that's not a lion, that's just like a pussycat, everything will be fine. that God doesn't get angry, God just gets sad when we're not able to live the lives that He wants us to live, the lives that are good. God just wants good things for us. It's not terrifying, God doesn't need to be feared. And while I understand the motivation for this, I want to suggest that that is entirely an unhelpful way of seeing things. First of all, it's, it's, it's untrue. God is not just a little bit bigger than us, He is so far beyond us. He, he, he spoke with a word, and this entire world came into being. And he could speak with a word and bring it to an end in a moment. When he comes and becomes one of us in, in a form that we can kind of understand in Jesus, even still, as Jesus comes near to any demon, the demons, who are terrifying on, uh, on their own, shriek in fear at his presence. This, this God is described in his anger as a consuming fire, and throughout the Bible, anytime God draws near, anytime that people are able to experience just a little bit more of what God is like, there is only one response. It doesn't matter when God comes before this army like we just saw in the Psalm, or before when God comes on the, you know, the burning bush before Moses, or when he comes in the earthquake on Mount Sinai, or before Isaiah, where Isaiah is in the temple, or when the angels speak to Mary again and again, what happens is terror. Because whatever ways that people have been deceiving themselves until that moment, all the deception is pulled away, and they realize (laughs) that God is God, and they are not. And for us to suggest anything else is for us to choose to live in a kind of fantasy land. This is who God is. He is a God who is to be feared. But the problem is not only that it isn't true, it is that it is actually damaging to us. As long as we fail to see God in this way, I believe our lives will be disordered and our lives will be more fearful Because here's the thing, if God is really essentially just a really nice grandfather in the sky, who really wants our good, but really is not anyone to be that worried about, well, we can get warm, fuzzy feelings when we need but what happens when we face things that really, truly get us nervous or afraid, whether it's worry about our kids, for those of us who have kids, or, or we, we have a symptom that makes us think that maybe we have cancer, or something happens at work where it looks like we might lose our income. Those are big, real things. In that moment, do we suddenly find this, this grandfather in the sky important? No, these things are what matter most to us. Something as small as what we're imagining is not going to be enough to help us in that moment. But if, if God is glorious and big and terrifying and at the center of everything, that, that changes all of that. I said before that there is nothing more terrifying than being before an angry God who is angry with you. But it's another thing altogether if God is in front of you protecting you. I mean, don't get me wrong, just like with the psalmist, when the psalmist sees this happen, it's still terrifying. But it is the kind of terror that actually leads to a kind of peace and security. Here's here's the remarkable truth. This God that we have been talking about. For those of us who call on the name of Christ, who trust Him, what this psalm, this psalm has a very specific name for God. Well, two I suppose you could say. One is Yahweh, but also verse 11, it says Yahweh, your God. Do you know what it means that God is your God? it means that this glorious terrifying god is a god who fights for you i'm struck in the gospels by how when you see jesus express anger it's almost always about the same kind of thing he it's interesting about the way that the bible speaks about him rebuking he will rebuke fever there's an anger that he has towards disease. that hurts people. He will rebuke demons that are tormenting human beings. We, we see him in the temple turning over tables in fury because this is the place that his people are supposed to be able to pray. And even when he steps before grief, as Lazarus has died, it doesn't just say that Jesus weeps. It actually speaks about Jesus being angry. He is angry at the pain that we have to experience. He is angry at the brokenness of this world. He has a hatred for all that is opposed to us because of His love for us. That is our God. And this God exhausted all of His force and all of His anger and all of His love at the cross because He is fighting for us, and He conquers sin and death for us. And if we can begin to understand that this God, this God who is to be feared is also the God who is furious at all that harms us and is furiously for us, fiercely loving us, then that changes us. And, and Acts... The, the, the book that comes after the Gospels, which is a record of what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven, one of the things that I find extraordinary is those same disciples who so often seem to be afraid in the time of Jesus now have this remarkable boldness. It doesn't matter if they're going to be imprisoned. It doesn't matter if people are mocking them. It doesn't matter even if they're killed. They remain bold in speaking about Jesus. And if you think about it, are we surprised? I mean, these disciples have been with the one who was able to command the winds and the waves. They know they have nothing more to be afraid of if this one is on their side. And this, I think, is what this psalm is seeking to give to us. As, As he stands in the wall, he says, look with me, see that our God, our God, is a God to be feared and then at the very end of this psalm, as he's kind of shown this to us, it's like he, he, he no longer looks away. He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, okay, now here's, here's what we need to do. Here's what you need to do if you are seeing what I want you to see. And that is verse 11 Make and keep your vows to the Lord your God. Well, why do people make vows? We don't make many vows in our day. Marriage is probably the most common one, so let's think about marriage for a second. Why do we make vows in marriage? I mean, part of it, of course, is to provide security and confidence to our future spouse. But part of it is for ourselves. If if we go with even a hint of realism into our marriage, we realize that the way that we're feeling in the moment that we're making the vows is not always how we'll feel. That there are some times that this will be really hard. And what we're doing when we make a vow is we are making a choice. This is the kind of life that I want, whether in the future I feel like it or not. I am binding myself to this because I want to be committed to this person. We are binding ourselves, having a choice to have this kind of life and not another. And that's what the psalmist says. He says, if right now, even right, right now in this moment, if, if you see God with any greater degree of clarity, if you are able to recognize the greatness, the gloriousness of your God, take a moment to bind yourself to the kind of life that you want. Because here's the thing. Moments of insight don't usually last after you step out into the open and see things and see things more clearly, you inevitably need to continue walking. And if you are not careful, those things that at once were so clear will fade and no longer seem clear later on. So here he is saying, here is the opportunity. Don't let this insight keep you unformed. Allow yourself to be changed by the truth you see in this moment. And I wonder just... Wanting to kind of preach what we have here in this passage, I, I want to ask you if you are seeing God even remotely more clearly in this moment, is there something in your life, in the way that you are, that it is clear to you that you need to see changed? It, the, the psalmist doesn't say what kind of vows. I suspect that's because he realizes for different people, it looks different. It is inviting us to a life that is more connected to reality. is there something that the spirit has been slowly pushing upon your heart, a change that you know you've needs to, to make, but you've not done it because you are afraid. You know, I actually think sometimes part of the reason we don't pray more is out of fear. We feel like if we're not constantly busy, if we don't keep doing things, we won't be able to keep up. And Maybe that is where God is, is, is leading you to. Whatever it is, I think this psalm is inviting us in this moment to bind ourselves in deeper obedience to the God who is so good and so much to be feared.